You are now entering the transit zone. It's certainly not a model that we'd ever consider at, at a federal level, and I think that's been on display for some time. You've got to have processes that assume people are innocent before uh, they, they, they're thought to be guilty, and, and that is a real problem. Um, so it's not a model that we've ever contemplated uh, going at a federal level, and uh, you know we have a set of arrangements at a federal level uh, that can be built upon, but certainly not going down that path in New yeah. South Wales, and I'm sure there are millions of people who've seen what's happened to Gladys Berry Jickly and they'll understand that that's a, that's a pretty good call not to follow that model. This is not the great sort of righteous process. It's a little bit Spanish Inquisitionist. And then the other thing I would say is we elect politicians, not bureaucrats. The uh, outcomes last week where a very popular and highly competent Premier uh, stood down um, highlights some of the flaws in the model. So we don't support a model where you are presumed guilty unless you can prove your innocence. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beapai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Well, it's been a very long journey towards a Federal Integrity Commission in Australia since the Greens' Bob Brown first called for such a body in the Senate in 2009. All states and territories have since enacted anti-corruption bodies. Various polls indicate a large majority of Australian electors want one federally. Labor first committed to one in January 2018 and pledged at the 2019 election to enact one within 12 months of their taking office. But they lost that election. The coalition remained adamantly opposed. Morrison dubbed it a fringe issue until his hand was forced after Karen Phelps won the 2018 Wentworth by-election and a crossbench push saw Cathy McGowan introduce a bill in November 2018 and attract support from a National Party backbencher. Under pressure, Morrison stalled momentum by releasing an outline of an extremely weak bill that included no whistleblower referrals, no public hearings, no public findings, only criminal offences investigated. He requested submissions by mid-February 2019. At the May 2019 election, Morrison pledged to enact integrity legislation within a year. In August 2019, then-Attorney-General Christian Porter told Parliament he was finalising legislation to present to Parliament by the end of that year, 2019. In September 2019, the Senate passed the Larusa Waters Bill, similar to the McGowan Bill, sponsored by the Greens and backed by Labor, the Centre Alliance and Jackie Lambie. Porter had misled Parliament. Nothing happened for more than a year, until October 2020, when Helen Haynes introduced a modified version of McGowan's bill to the House of Representatives and won the support of Labor, the Greens and every House of Representatives crossbencher to debate it in Parliament. She needed just two coalition backbenchers to cross the floor and momentum seemed unstoppable. But again, Morrison stalled it, this time releasing draft legislation faithful to his weak outline nearly two years before and once again seeking consultation. Nothing happened again until the furor around sports rorts and car park rorts saw the new Attorney-General, Michaelia Cash, promise in May this year, 2021, to introduce the government's bill by the end of 2021. 
This month, however, as we heard at the head of this podcast, Prime Minister Morrison, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce and Communications Minister Paul Fletcher and other Coalition MPs are questioning the very need for a commission at all, or certainly an effectual one, after the resignation of Berejiklian as Premier of New South Wales. Assistant Minister to the Attorney-General Amanda Stoker has said it may not be presented this year after all. Just follow the bouncing ball. Morrison is using an almost laughable circular argument, basically because Gladys, against the backdrop of an avalanche of coalition propaganda that includes phrases such as kangaroo court, star chamber, and of course, innocent until proven guilty. There is muscular misinformation and deception aplenty. Recently, the Centre for Public Integrity released a detailed appraisal of current corruption watchdogs around Australia in the states and territories, plus detailed comparisons between the various proposals for a federal ICAC, including the government's and Haynes. That report was caustically scathing about the government plan, calling it the weakest watchdog. It would hide corruption, not expose it, said an Integrity Centre director, Stephen Charles QC, a former judge of the Victorian Court of Appeal, echoing a swag of similar stringent critiques. To add to the febrile atmosphere, the Victorian Parliament has just seen a Cabinet Minister step down after being accused in evidence given in their independent broad-based anti-corruption commission, IBAC, in public hearings. We spoke to Dr Helen Haynes in the Transit Zone about her bill almost 12 months ago now, in November 2020. Christian Porter had just released that government version of a Federal Integrity Commission. Porter is now a backbencher. So what will Helen Haynes do when Federal Parliament resumes next week, a year after she first presented her bill? Helen Haynes is with us from her office in regional Victoria. Helen, welcome back to the Transit Zone. Thank you very much, Peter. And I'm joining you today from Bangarang country and I pay my respects to elders. Helen, I don't know whether it's deja vu or Groundhog Day, but the two big issues that community independents are standing up for in blue ribbon seats, climate change and the need for a federal ICAC, are coming to a head as Parliament resumes next week. Now, last year you said you you wanted to do the good faith thing and, and, and see if the government was for real. What do you think now, a year on? Well, Margot... Uh, It does feel like Groundhog Day, and uh, the answer to your second question is the government is not for real. That's patently clear. I think the the historical timeline Peter just laid out for us uh, is a compelling example of the delays, uh, the misinformation, the egregious activities alleged that have happened uh, over the past year and a complete stalling of any federal government legislation. We're more than 1,000 days now since Prime Minister Morrison promised the electorate, promised the voters that on his, uh, in his prime ministership in this parliament he would introduce and commence a federal integrity commission. Well, of course, that hasn't happened. Uh, so, yes, I'm returning to parliament next week. And last time I sat in Parliament about a month ago, I called out the government then to say 1,000 days, still nothing. I've been doing considerable work with my colleagues in both the House and the Senate to find a way to bring back my bill and uh, to debate that. Of course, we have the Greens bill, Larissa Waters and the Greens bill. So I think we, we might be seeing a concurrence motion coming from the Greens on their bill. 
and uh, I'll be working with both my House and Senate colleagues to bring back my bill as well. So the pressure's on. We have the Assistant Attorney General Amanda Stoker, who's currently the spokesperson for the for the government bill, but uh, nothing in sight, nothing in sight at all. All we have is that uh, roundly criticised draft plan for a bill. No legislation, no one's seen any legislation from the government. So Helen, this time last year, you were all set to move a suspension of standing orders to force a vote to debate your bill. I'll never forget that press conference where you had Mark Dreyfus from Labor, you had the Greens, you had every single crossbencher Senate and and reps there saying, we want to debate this bill. And you, you pulled it because of, you know, the last minute play by, by Morrison and Porter. And you said to us then that you were going to continue good faith negotiations with coalition MPs who really wanted something decent. Are you considering forcing coalition MPs to to actually reject debate on your bill so that they're they're on the record? Margot, there's several parliamentary tools at my disposal. So in the period of time uh, since we last spoke, my bill has elapsed from the notice paper, which means that I need to reintroduce it, which I can do. I would need to do that and then then call a suspension of standing orders to have it debated immediately. So that's one step. There's other options open to me through the Senate as well. So all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. When I return to Parliament, prime consideration for me is the Integrity Commission Bill. Absolutely it is. Again, watch this space. I won't be silent on this. I refuse to be silent on this. And of course, the government are doing their manoeuvres as well. They know how serious I am about an Integrity Commission. It wouldn't surprise me at all if without fanfare, Amanda Stoker comes forward with a piece of legislation from the government and that lands in the House. This is a delicate operation, of course, because when coalition members are considering exercising their right to make a considered conscience vote, essentially, and not vote with their party, then it's, uh, it's an easier decision for them to make when the, when the government doesn't have anything else on offer. I respect their decision last year to say, look, Helen, we want to wait because the government has promised us that this consultation period on their draft bill is taking place. At the very least, we should wait for that consultation to complete. Well, you know, we've seen that consultation. Peter just outlined for us that the consultation indicated that any person who knows anything about the establishment of an integrity commission has trashed this bill as completely unworkable. So we're at that point. Yeah, I return to Parliament next week and I will be prosecuting a case for my bill. Can you give us an indication of what could be done in the Senate to try and force the issue? There's all sorts of possibilities there. The Senate could introduce the bill. That's a possibility. That could happen. Or, as I said before, I could make my application to the Selection Committee to reintroduce my bill in the House, just take it through there again and immediately call for a suspension of standing orders. Now, those things are possible. Those things are both possible. Yeah. Watching Paul Fletcher on Insiders just being completely unable to defend the fact that it was a crime only, not political corruption, that there's no public hearings, no public findings, it struck me that the government could introduce the bill and then just refer it off to a committee and say, oh, all that's done, all that's over, and therefore we've got nothing before an election. 
What's your theory about the way they might play this? I think there's every chance they might do that, uh, but that does not preclude people like me, while their bill is sitting out on a committee, um, from doing, you know, exercising those same manoeuvres with my bill. So I think there's every chance they'll do that. That would be a pretty disingenuous political move to say we tried, you know, we've had COVID, we've had bushfires. You know, we introduced it in the last gasp of the 46th Parliament. Now it's sitting in a committee and, you know, uh, we've got to wait for the committee to do its business. But, you know, Margot, Australians are much smarter than that. I think that possibly the opposition would be rather happy if that happened. Again, it's um, a tremendously strong argument coming into an election that uh, Morrison broke really the most fundamental promise of his election campaign on integrity. I mean, the irony of that is breathtaking. Helen, I'd love to hear your response to the sort of rhetoric we heard at the head of this podcast from Barnaby Joyce, from Morrison, from Paul Fletcher, running the line that because Gladys had to step down in New South Wales, and we're still awaiting what's going to happen there, of course, that's the the real irony here, that because of that, no, we don't want to go near an ICAC which is going to knock off very competent, wonderful leaders, as Paul Fletcher put it. What's your response to that political rhetoric? I think it's straight out of the coalition playbook. They're setting up a false dichotomy that it's the New South Wales ICAC or nothing, and that's just patently untrue. It's a complete misrepresentation of the kind of models of integrity commissions that can be can be created. And uh, you mentioned at the beginning, the Centre for Public Integrity has done uh, an enormous amount of work in this space. And they've set out for us in their blueprint document uh, a very clear spectrum of integrity commissions, anti-corruption commissions from around the country, from every state and territory laid out for us, where they sit on a spectrum. And in relation to the New South Wales ICAC, uh, that's at one end of the spectrum. And what you'll see, and I'm sure you've read that document, is that the bill that I've introduced sits in a very nice sweet spot of being able to undertake the job it's designed to do, and that's to be a robust Federal Integrity Commission with all the powers of a standing Royal Commission, with the powers to uh, initiate its own investigations, to have public hearings when in the public interest to do so, to have a broad uh, definition of corruption that, that doesn't have to meet the criminal bar and that has very good safeguards built in. That means people brought before the Commission who are found to be innocent don't have their reputations trashed that a significant amount of work happens before the investigation becomes public that's done in private. Uh, There's lots of safeguards there, including public reports of exonerations in my bill. And that's, I think that's a really important part of, of what I've put forward is that should someone who's been investigated, and let's say it was, you know, someone such as the Premier of New South Wales, if indeed um, she's found completely innocent of any wrongdoing, that's uh, actually tabled in the parliament, uh, that it's there forevermore to say that this person had nothing to answer for. There's many ways we can do this. So Mr Morrison is, is being extremely mischievous, deliberately mischievous about this, as is, of course, the Deputy Prime Minister, who chooses to trivialise one of the most fundamental and important tenets of a highly functioning democracy, and that's trust, and transparency by comparing it to the Spanish Inquisition. Now, of course, that's just classic obfuscation. I certainly won't stand by as a Member of Parliament representing a community who are calling on me to continue to work on this to trivialise such an important thing. Helen, Barnaby Joyce also conjured up that idea that how are politicians going to be able to do their job with this 
I guess, a star chamber looking over their shoulder. From your soundings within the parliament, is there a confusion amongst MPs generally about what is integrity, in fact? What is a scrupulous set of ethics, in fact? The line that you shouldn't cross, is that line clear to your colleagues? Is there actually a very fundamental problem here with actually understanding ethics, actually having scrupulous integrity? Well, I think the fact that there is no Commonwealth parliamentary code of standards, nothing. We have a ministerial code that the Prime Minister sets. Well, and again, you could judge the Prime Minister's own ethics by the standards which he's happy to walk past. Uh, you gave a couple of examples at the beginning of this, this podcast. But there's no such code, of, no such standards for, for members of parliament more broadly. As you know, when I introduced the Australian Federal Integrity Commission Bill 2020, I had a sister bill with that, the Commonwealth Parliamentary Standards Bill. Cathy had the same thing. It was around establishing a code of conduct for MPs which would lay out some fundamental ethical behaviour and a parliamentary standards commissioner that would assist MPs because, look, without question, you know, there are times when you might have to ask yourself the question, oh... Is this right or proper? What should I do here? And, oh, wouldn't it be terrific to actually go and sit down with the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner and, and think it through really, really carefully? Now, there's some stuff that's just fundamentally basic that, you know, someone who's running is president of the local Parents and Friends Association would know, and that's around conflicts of interest. That's around giving preference or undue influence to people or persons or organisations that perhaps uh, may be a donors to your school or, uh, you know, this stuff is so fundamental. It's what makes everyday people totally despair of leadership. You know, I think the sports rorts and car park rorts are great examples of this. Car park rorts, you know, clearly, you know, large sums of taxpayer dollars being sprinkled around in electorates that the coalition wish to win. Sports rorts, I think, sits at the heart of everyday people's disgust in that the amount of work that goes into putting in something as fundamental as a grant application to improve the sporting facilities at your local tennis club or your local footy club and to know that that you meet all the criteria, you are abiding by the guidelines. And I know these people work late into the night doing these applications. They call my office for assistance and help. In fact, I write grant writing workshops to help people to make sure that when they put in a grant application, they've got the best chance of being successful. And to know that at the end of the day, that that gets divvied up according to a colour-coded spreadsheet. And I note today in The Guardian that a similar, a similar activity has happened again by the National Party. Now, I don't know what they don't get about this, but here it is again, and this time on the Building Better Regions Fund. That stuff is so on the nose and completely undermines the trust in all members of parliament. It's why people hold members of parliament in disregard and you know, we're at a point in our history where governments have asked everyday people to trust in them in ways that have never been asked of them before, to forego their liberties in so many ways for the common good. And the fact that this Prime Minister cannot repay that trust in a way that is transparent and fair and it establish an integrity commission, again, it just beggars belief, really. Helen, your bill widely defines corrupt conduct to include conflicts of interest, favours to donors, quid pro quos, you know, billions in procurement contracts go out and yep. suddenly public servants or politicians get big jobs, all, all that sort of stuff. 
that would clearly cover regional roads, car park roads, sports roads, robo debt, where it's alleged that the government proceeded despite advice that it was unlawful. Would that be covered by yours and not by Morrison's? Well, it would be determined by the commissioner. The good thing about mine is that uh, a referral to have the an investigation um, considered can come by anyone. So at least it would be considered, Margot. Under Morrison's model, there's no such capacity for integrity commissions to initiate their own investigations or for junior members of a department, and let's face it, it's often junior members of a department who see things that are not right, to make a referral. So there's every chance it could be investigated by the Australian Federal Integrity Commission and no chance whatsoever that it would be under Morrison's proposed model. So therein lies a major problem. If the first bar you have to jump is that it it, uh, is a likely criminal activity, none of those things would ever be investigated. We'd be no better off because already we can refer something to the DPP, to the Australian Federal Police for an investigation if we think something's of criminal intent. Christian Porter's blind trust, the government's bill would do nothing on that. Would your bill allow a Federal Integrity Commission to investigate that matter? Look, the Christian Porter Blind Trust comes under AEC rules, actually, at the moment and uh, under the IPA Act. So it's a little complicated, I think. Clearly, it's, it's just patently wrong that any member of parliament could think that it was acceptable to uh, accept funds and not know who it was coming from, nor reveal how much it was. So, I mean, that's just, again... It's so extraordinarily, obviously not right that the rules need to change about that. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston. Our guest for her second visit to the zone is Dr Helen Haynes, the independent member for the seat of Indi in Northern Victoria. We're discussing her private member's bill for an Australian Federal Integrity Commission, and comparing it with other proposed versions, including the federal government's. Helen, let's drill down into some of these key elements, the key planks within your bill, and compare it with, especially with the government's bill, but make reference to other ICACs or other forms of ICAC around Australia if you want. The two publics, public hearings, public findings. Now, Morrison, Fletcher, Barnaby Joyce have made it clear they're really opposed to Public hearings, public findings. Fletcher was unable to defend that with David Spears on Insiders. What is your justification for having public hearings and public findings? Again, you'll hear the government say consistently that their proposed bill has all the powers of a standing royal commission. Now, Christian Porter said that so many times, you know, we got tired of hearing it. But a standing royal commission has public hearings and public findings. So, you know, I think they strike themselves out at the first uh, first point there. So we cannot have the public blind to the findings of a body that's set up to ensure that we have a pro-integrity parliament. I mean, it's just a nonsense. I think the the key element here is to, to make sure, to be sensible, that when an investigation begins, when a referral has been made to an integrity commission, that the commissioners need to be satisfied that they have enough evidence to kick off then a public hearing, to gather more evidence. So 
that initial work needs to be done. And again, and that's the importance of an independent commissioner, and my bill has multiple safeguards around this, to ensure that there's no scurrilous, mud-slinging um, attempts to, to ruin a person's reputation that would get to the first base of being publicly aired. You know, that it needs to be verified. Of course it does. I mean, it, it's again, it's look-over-here kind of politics from the very people who've promised us they'd do something about this. You know, it's so clear that they do not wish to do this. And I think, um, you know, Mr Fletcher, Mr Joyce, Mr Morrison all making the same line here. And again, the situation with the New South Wales ICAC and the former Premier. This myth about the Premier of, former Premier of New South Wales being forced by ICAC to resign is patently a mistruth. That is not the case. Former Premier Berejiklian made her own decision to resign. She did not have to do that. It's hard to comprehend how they could try this, but they, they've got two halves. They've got a really strong Royal Commission retrospective, whistleblowers, public hearings, public findings for law enforcement, for the Australian Federal Police and Border Force. Then they have nothing for politicians and senior public servants. I remember at the time it came out, the police just being completely up in arms about how they get everything and the politicians get nothing. How do you get your head around that? Dichotomy. Well, I, I don't. I mean, I, I just refute it. That's a total nonsense. What court, for example, would have a different set of rules for one group of people than another? What, what royal commission would? You know, this is a special, very special design by, by uh, Mr Morrison and his team to absolutely and utterly set up a protection commission for MPs and senior departmental staff. You know, like it's a complete and utter nonsense. If I was them, I would be just embarrassed to step out in the public and even... I mean, the, the, the hubris of this, if it wasn't so serious, would be hilarious. It, it's just so crazy that um, there's no way in the world that this proposed bill that they've been shopping around could ever even be amended to work. So it's a total nonsense. I really, really hope that, that people do listen up very carefully because when this gets spun what is a, a fast-looming election, the LNP will be very carefully trying to convince people that they've done their job on this. But they so have not done their job on this. This is a broken promise of, I think, such proportion that any person out there trying to make a decision about who they might vote for would do well to think about what it says about a government who try to pull the wool over our eyes on something as fundamental as integrity. It's extraordinary. Helen, I want to examine more closely the three scope elements, the scope of what is corruption, retrospectivity, and referrals. Who can actually refer to the commission, whether it be whistleblowers, ordinary citizens, etc. They seem to me to be about scope and boundaries. Yeah. Please compare your bill again with the government's proposal. Well, my bill, all of those things can happen. With the government's bill, None of those things can happen. It's as simple as that. So, you know, you need to be a senior departmental head in order to make a referral into Morrison's model. So, um, you know, a junior person who has some concerns needs to go to the boss to tell them, well, it could be the boss who's corrupt. You know, again, it's, it's laughable. I think it's really important. Uh, some of the modifications that I've made, there's been, you know, multiple iterations from 2009, Peter, as you pointed out in your introduction, 
One of the uh, elements in my bill that I think is really important is protection of journalists, for example. So there's strong whistleblower protections in, in my bill. The Morrison bill, again, no retrospectivity. And again, if you listen to some of the rhetoric around this, uh, they, they roll out the old rule of law line. Again, that's a complete furphy. There's no way in the world an integrity commission can apply a new law to an old uh, issue. That can't happen in my bill, can't happen anywhere. That doesn't happen. But what it does have the capacity to do is to look over a period of time because what it's trying to establish is if there's a systemic pattern of corruption. That's really important. And when we think about uh, the, the misuse of taxpayer dollars, it's really important to see the systemic nature of that to determine uh, whether in fact there's something very seriously corrupt. So really, really important. The fact that the government bill can't do that is a major flaw, an absolute major flaw. Helen, obviously having an effective and effectual integrity commission is really fundamental to democracy. But As part of democracy, this is going to be a very interesting election, isn't it, if coalition MPs are out there trying to sell the very weak government version versus your version. What a disconnect, what a mismatch there, and against the polls which we've seen, nudging in some parts of Australia 80% of, of citizens who want a strong federal ICAC. So how do you see that in terms of electioneering, the process of democracy, arguing your case versus the government case? We're hearing it now. We're hearing sitting members of the coalition who have constituents giving them considerable pressure over this, coming out on the airwaves and telling us um, how pro-integrity commission they are and telling us that, you know, the government's doing good work on this and by golly, we're going to have an integrity commission this parliament. Of course, you know, they're saying that because they're hearing loud and clear that the community wants this. Now, again, this comes down to the communication from people like me, I think, from my Crossbench colleagues who are very pro a robust Federal Integrity Commission to make sure that people understand that they're being sold a pup if they believe that the coalition's model is going to do the job that everyone wants it to do, because it simply will not. It's absolutely a total and utter sham. It will not in any way solve the problem that we're trying to solve. I would say to anyone who, who hears from a member of the government that this is all under control, no need to worry, we're going to get an integrity commission, it's going to be good, don't believe them because it's not true. Under the current model, it's not true. Now, no one would be more delighted than me than if I'm wrong about what the government proposes to introduce. If Minister Cash or Assistant Minister Stoker come forward in the next sitting fortnight with a bill that looks very similar to mine, no one would be more happy than me. That would be fantastic. I would be delighted. I would feel like my work has been has been done. Um, but I'm not confident that that will happen, not one bit. In your view, Helen, what makes Morrison, Barnaby Joyce, Paul Fletcher and their colleagues so adamantly against public hearings, public findings, all those planks within your bill which go to make up a uh, robust Federal Integrity Commission What makes them so adamantly opposed to all those things, in your view, your analysis? Well, I, you know, I think you can listen to what they say. They, you know, they say it will, you know, will be a star chamber. Total nonsense. Why are they afraid of this? Well, perhaps, perhaps they're not so proud of the way that uh, some of these grants have been administered. Maybe deep down they do know that some of these grants under ministerial discretion, that that discretion has not been exercised for the public good. Now, they would argue, uh, and I think we hear them argue all the time, and, and the classic line is always, every one of these grants has met the guidelines. Well, 
every grant does meet the guidelines in order to even get into the system. There's a process called Grants Connect, whereby all grant applications are uploaded and in order to get through the first hurdle, they need to meet the guidelines. So thousands of grant applications are made by citizens around the nation and in order to get past the first post, they have to meet the guidelines. What happens next is, of course, they're judged against a set of criteria and scored. And this is where we get the recommendations from the departments to say, here are the top scoring projects according to the guidelines and assessed by the scoring criteria. And uh, if it stopped there and there were recommendations made from the department and they were upheld, we wouldn't have so many problems. But of course, under the Westminster system, the minister is responsible and the minister does have some discretionary power. And I'm not here to argue to say that they shouldn't have any. Of course they should and they can, but they need to be transparent about it. They need to come clean and say, I made the decision to fund the Wangaratta Clay Shooting Club because it was close in in its scoring to this other club, but there's a whole set of extenuating circumstances here or there's a whole lot of other issues that I want to consider and that's why I've chosen it. Just be honest about it. And if you can't be honest about it, then in fact you're hiding something. So if you're not prepared to show your colour-coded spreadsheet to the nation without an FOI on it, then maybe you need to be asking yourself a question as a minister as to whether it's the right thing to do. And Helen, do you see this as congruent with Morrison's well-known deep fondness for secrecy, uh, freedom of information, trying to wrap the National Cabinet also in that Cabinet secrecy? Secrecy is one of the hallmarks of this government, so it seems at one with what's going on with a, a proposed Integrity Commission, keeping everything quiet and under wraps. I think what I've seen in my period of time as a, an elected Member of Parliament is the most recent findings with uh, Senator Patrick's work on the National Cabinet and the secrecy around the National Cabinet. You know, I I think uh, what you've described and what I've just witnessed in the past few months is a pattern of behaviour. There's absolutely no justification whatsoever for the National Cabinet to be considered Cabinet. Uh, I think, again, the government's response to the court findings on this is to try and change the law. (laughs) You know, like... It's hard to make this stuff up, really. It is a pattern of behaviour that you have described, and and I'll leave others to judge on what's happened in the past, but I'm making my own judgments about what I've seen in the period that I've been a member of the parliament. The other big one coming up next week, Helen, is is climate change. It looks like the PM's going to get a deal, uh, is going to go to Glasgow. But the big thing for me is there will be no legislation enacting targets in 230 or 250 and he'll actually go to an election with the same thing able to happen if he wins crossing the floor and the wars continue what do you think of the state of play and and do you think Morrison will be able to stop community independence in blue ribbon seats being able to make this a big issue with with his announcement well it's a massive issue in blue ribbon seats. Of course it is. Voters are not stupid. You know, they've, they've seen this play out and they've seen, um, in contrast to what current coalition sitting members are saying, that they, you know, that they want strong action on climate change, what they're seeing is they're not, not doing the doing. They're voting, voting in a way that uh, is completely at odds with their statements of being pro-strong action on climate change. And uh, my, my colleague Zali Stegel, of course, case in point with her, her climate bill, you know, can't get it debated, just like my integrity bill, because no one on the coalition side is, in fact, being honest with their constituents. 
because that's what it comes down to. If, if you honestly, honestly believe and wish to enact strong action on climate change, then show your stripes. At the very least, at the very least, get up from your seat. It's quite simple, actually. I cross the floor all the time, backwards and forwards, making judgments on every piece of legislation. It's not difficult to do. Get up from your seat and come across and say, you know what, I'm going to back in Helen Haynes or Zali Stegall to have the bill debated. Let's debate it. Let's, you know, put it out there, folks. This is what we're paid to do. We're paid to argue on the evidence and and give the nation the kind of laws that we need to march into the future with a solid scientific backing. So they could do that. I mean, Zali's going to introduce her bill next sitting. I'll be seconding her bill like I did first time around. Um, I'll be speaking to it. When Zali was drafting her bill, she showed it to me. I said, you've got a piece missing here. You need to say more about rural and regional Australia. That was inserted into the bill. It has key elements in that bill that if a National Party person was actually took the time to read it, they would see that there are, there are safeguards in there, there are, there are opportunities for regional Australia. This is the bit that's just complete madness. So, yes, of course it's a massive issue. And again, integrity and climate are so inextricably linked because what we don't know, um, because there is no transparency, we don't know who is currying favour with our elected officials when it comes to policy on climate. It's why the, the crossbench, I think, have led the nation on the debate on integrity and on climate, uh, because they do, they sit together. We talked about disconnect earlier, Helen, and the other great disconnect, I've travelled around Australia a lot. I've seen the vast amounts of solar on cattle stations, on sheep farms, solar everywhere. We've got these vast developments now, batteries, big solar farms, wind farms, etc. And of course, you know well about regional focused regional energy projects as well. So we've got this sort of dual carriage, haven't we? Those sort of things are happening in the real world. But the influence of the coal electorates, particularly within the the National Party in Queensland, the LNP, and within the Liberals, and of course the obvious roiling we're seeing in the coalition at the moment, how do you see that playing out in this next election? Look, again, this is just total and utter madness. I'm, I'm a rural and regional MP. Uh, and I'm, I'm sitting in the House of Representatives because the National Party and the Liberal Party were not listening to the people of Indi. And the people of Indi have been extremely clear to me about this, is that they see climate action as one great big opportunity for regional Australia. You only need to think about it. Every major solar farm, wind farm, any large battery is sitting out in rural and regional Australia. What I've been working really hard to do, and, and, and when I came to Parliament, I told the people of Indi, I'm not just going to come and complain, I'm going to come with solutions, and, and you need to help me to do that. And they have helped me to do this. I introduced into Parliament in February this year the Australian Local Power Agency Bill, and that was built on a policy document I created with the people of Indi and regional Australians from right around the nation called the Local Power Plan. It was a true community co-design piece of policy work. And what it proposes to do is scale up community energy. It proposes to make sure that this renewable energy boom, this inevitable boom, the boom that's already happening, actually delivers results for regional Australia. And, you know, the bit that exasperates me and exasperates so many regional Australians is that instead of thinking 
and working with regional Australia and looking to the future rather than looking to the past. The National Party doesn't embrace the opportunities. Instead, they're talking about underwriting fossil fuels. They're talking about payments for land clearing that happened 20 years ago. Where's their future focus? You know, why, if they're doing secret deals behind closed doors, which they are, with Mr. Morrison, why aren't they, why aren't they asking for subsidies for methane reducing supplements to cattle? Why aren't they asking for more funds to come into, dare I say it, into the Building Better Regions Fund? And I would put a caveat there, with strong governance, please, that would deliver fundamental infrastructure to rural and regional towns and districts right around the nation. Why aren't they asking for a better deal on NBN so that local councils aren't asked to chip in to make sure that small communities have got access to the internet? Why aren't they doing a deal to make sure that every single rural and regional Australian never has to drive through another mobile phone black spot? No, they're not doing that, are they? What are they doing? You know, they're they're looking, looking to the past and they're making some kind of deal that no one will know about until uh, triumphantly the Prime Minister steps out and tells us he's going to Glasgow with a zero net emissions 2050 target. And, um, you know, again, it beggars belief that this is good governance. I certainly don't think it is. Helen Haynes, thank you for being with us in the Transit Zone again. And we'll be watching very intently next week your progress in the Federal Parliament. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Margot. Margot, catch you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time, Dr Helen Haynes the independent member for the Northern Victorian regional seat of Indi. I'll post links to Helen's website, including her private member's bill, plus some other useful links within the on-screen text for this podcast, so you can delve more deeply into this crucial issue ahead of the next federal election. If you'd like to email us here at the Transit Zone, this is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We welcome your comments, your questions, ideas for new podcast episodes. TransitZonePod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening, and please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.